0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today is part three of our series on local climate action. And we're going to be talking all about equity and environmental justice. If you've listened to the other episodes in our climate series, you know that when the city of Austin updated its climate plan in 2020 and 2021, it decided to do things differently by centering equity in the plan. And actually, they renamed the whole thing. It went from the Austin Community Climate Plan to the Austin Climate Equity Plan. But what does that really mean exactly? You know, what does it look like to center equity in climate work? Because especially in a place like Austin, it's really easy to throw around these so-called buzzwords like equity and justice without ever actually doing anything about it. So that's the goal of our show today, to really unpack what these terms mean and then to showcase real-world examples of centering equity and justice in environmental work. And to help us do that, we've got some really great guests for today's show. But first, I just wanted to share a few quick definitions to get us all on the same page. First up, equity. Here's how the City of Austin's Equity Office defines it. Quote, Equity is often used interchangeably with equality, though they are not the same. Equality means exactly as it says giving the same to everyone, regardless of context. Equity requires us to give people what they need to get them to where they want to be, as demonstrated in the images to the right, end quote. And that image to the right uh, that they're referencing there, it's a pretty classic image um, when used to describe equity. And it's of three different people all trying to watch a baseball game, but they're stuck behind a fence, so they can't see. And in the equality scenario, everyone is given the same size box or crate to stand on so they can see the game. But the problem is not everyone is the same height and the fence is different heights in different places. So in the equality scenario, only certain people are actually able to see over the fence and watch the baseball game. But in the equity image, people are given different size crates, some are taller than others, so that everyone is able to see over the fence. So that's equity. And then here's a definition of environmental justice from the U.S. Department of Energy. Quote, Environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Fair treatment means that no population bears a disproportionate share of negative environmental consequences resulting from industrial, municipal, and commercial operations, or from the execution of federal, state, and local laws, regulations, and policies. Meaningful involvement requires effective access to decision-makers for all, and the ability in all communities to make informed decisions and take positive actions to produce environmental justice for themselves." Okay, that's enough government definitions for now. Let's get to the people who are actually making these things happen. First up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Larry Franklin. Larry is the founder of Black Lives Veggies, a local org that addresses food insecurity by providing disenfranchised communities with gardening education and resources. And he's also currently serving as a food justice fellow at the Austin Common, Helping us to tell more community focused stories about the intersection of gentrification, climate, and food. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. All right, I'm here with Larry, and um, I'm really excited because, Larry, you are our new Food Justice Fellow here at the Austin Common. And so I want to start out our conversation. We're going to talk about different food things that you're doing in town, but I want to start just by introducing people to you. And so how did you get into this work? Let's let's give a little background. You're doing all kinds of food stuff now, but what made you interested in, you know, bringing food and gardening to different communities in Austin? Like how did you get into this? <coughs> I know it's a long well, story.
1: Well, first I <laughs> want to say um that I'm very thankful for the people that I've encountered along my journey. Um, Their support has been everything. It means everything to me. I think that without them, there would be no me. So I feel like I entered this industry by accident, you know. Um, According to the rules that was written, I was headed down a path of self-destruction. I think I was like 14 years old selling crack, and I was pretty good at it actually i was really good (laughs) good enough to go to jail a few times (laughs) and then to prison but while i was in prison you know something changed i just didn't have the same ambition or more nor desire nor courage um to re-enter society and become a local drug dealer again so i made up my mind to get a job started off in landscaping you know because coming from the environment that I come from, you don't really believe that you have much skill or anything to offer to the world. Mm. So you take the entry route of least challenge, landscaper. From landscaper, um, I went to garden helper. From garden helper, I went to project manager. Um, While I would lead 13 senior gardeners throughout the city of Austin, I ended up quitting because I recognized my value, started my first company, Urban Gardens. I failed. Went back to work following the death of George Floyd. As we all remember, you know. There was this epiphany moment where everybody was just kind of like in front of the police station. And I seen so many people. I've never seen such number in my life. And I was like, what are we going to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Why can't we be like this every day? You know, with damn sure get change. So shortly after that, I felt like, I couldn't leave the word justice alone. I couldn't leave the word excellence alone. So Black Lives Veggies started. And the entire model, you know, the entire direction of the company is not a pen and pad thing. It's a meet, greet, shut up and listen, <laughs> and allow the individual to tell you the best way to serve them. And that's why I started off with saying, you know, without the people, there would be no I.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, Black Lives Veggies, talk a little bit about it. Um, what are you all doing with that program? Oh, man. I know it's a lot. It's a lot. We'll start know, in the, yeah, let's it's, start basics.
1: It, it's truly a lot, you know. I'm going to try to give you everything that I can remember. <laughs> so, right now, we have a couple of apartment complexes that we're working with. Um, And with the apartment complexes, we have some programs called Build Me Up. We have Build Me Up and Build Me Up 1.0. Build Me Up 1.0 was created based off the people. You know, like we had this idea. We went into somebody else's turf, and they was like, yo, we're not feeling that. So 1.0 is more catered towards the people, which starts off as a board game. I mean, bingo, excuse me. starts off as bingo, just teaching the people about the nutritional value of vegetables Shortly after that, we cross over into our education curriculum, and then we get the people outside, you know, getting them the experience of the plant, grow, harvest, etc. And we believe that within disenfranchised communities, we have to see our own selves doing good, you know, like somebody got to be that symbol of hope. And so Black Lives Veggies, along with the community, becomes that symbol of hope. We have a program called Legacy.
0: (laughs) Wait, I'm going to ask you first. I want to hear about more programs, but I, I like what you said there, which is um, that you first went into these communities, you know, apartment complexes, and you had these ideas about how to teach people about gardening and mm-hmm. vegetables, and you said they told you no. No, like it was... <laughs> and I like that, you know, like talk more about that because I feel like that's a common issue, right, As is we all feel like we have these ideas, but then, you know, it doesn't mean you need the community to really lead on this.
1: Absolutely, I agree with you. And like quite often, well, like almost... A hundred percent of the time, you know, <laughs> we have something called a government, a local government, and you have like all these positions and all these fancy titles with all these badass degrees. but we always miss the mark, you know, and we end up having to revise, 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 and then pay people for a feedback because <clears throat> because initially we don't go in listening initially we just go into somebody else's environment thinking that we have the solution for them which is really like foul Mm -hmm. because what we're saying is that you can't solve your own problems Mm -hmm. if we give you this money you won't know what to do with it so we're going to solve your problem for you and then the result is a failure or we're just going to edit it we're going to get some more feedback we're going to do another what they call them when they yeah. give you some money and you fill out the surveys.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right? We're going to mm. do another one of those mm-hmm. things.
1: I mean, all you got to do is go down there, shut up, and listen to the people. Right. They'll tell you everything they need. Spend some time with them. Watch them. Get to know them, Shake their hand. Look at their food. Look at what they eat. How they dress. Why they cuss. You know? We separate ourselves from the market that we're trying to serve.
0: Yeah, I love that. And that's how you kind of got into... This idea of the bingo game and trying to make it more fun, right? Because people don't want to have another chore on their list, right? In their lives.
1: So the the curriculum for the vegetables, it was exciting to us. Right. Immediately when I went in, like the second session, they was like, yo, we don't want that no more. (laughs) But immediately I stopped. I poured out my paper. I poured out my pen. It took no dollars. It took no phone calls. I just stopped. I listened. Everything they said, I wrote down. They told me what they needed, how they needed it. And now we have three apartment complexes that we're working with. So I feel like, you know, a democracy is based on serving the people, starting from the bottom to the top, not an individual, high-horsing off a title, dishing out rules and and roles.
0: Yeah. So that's what the apartment complex is. Then you have a few other programs you've been working on too. Let's talk about some of those. So
1: we have Legacy. And um, Legacy is pretty much, it started off with Martin Middle School. They have two amazing mules. And I went in and understanding the the communities, I'm like, how do we create a different culture? How do we take away these, this, this attitude-like culture, like I'm gangster, and I'm hard, and build something of grand and superior reflection starting from the inside? So in Martin, they have these two big old mural walls. And what we're going to do is we're going to paint over the walls, and we're going to allow each kid to give their definition of their personal legacy. And they're going to do it every year, from 6th to 7th to 8th. But every year they pass it down to the next individual. So me, I'm in 6th grade. Somebody in the 8th grade is teaching me. 8th grader leave. The 6th grader moves to 7th grade. They put their legacy on there, and then they teach a 6th grader. And the ideal is for the kids to define personal legacy put it on the wall so they can see it daily, and then pass the same information down. And hopefully, when they see what they said about themselves on that wall, it's like an invisible accountability source. And I believe that if they can hold on to that, then it could become school culture. And if it becomes school culture, it becomes community culture and possibly household culture. And that's how we change our environments.
0: Yeah, and and I like, you know, when I've talked to you about this before, the school programs in particular, you had mentioned, you know, you grew up in Austin and felt like you lacked a lot of these mentorship opportunities, resources at, from the school. Um, so, you know, it's so, and now you're able to go back and try and pr- provide that and be that for, you know, what, what you feel like wasn't there when you were a kid.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing opportunity. At large, I won't fault nobody, <clears throat> because at large, like, we all come from some type of education background, and we didn't wake up and say, I want to come from this background. It just was, like, handed to us. So, at large, I fought nobody. But as a kid, of course, the opportunities were not given, and I think I was in the seventh grade, and I failed the seventh grade. So, I did the seventh grade two times, mm-hmm. and after the second time, I was like, you know what? I don't even know why I'm at school. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of became the store runner kid, meaning I would get up, you know, and go sit over there by the older guys that were selling drugs. And because I was young, they would use my youth. I would run to the store, buy some, uh uh some noodles or something, you know, mm-hmm. and they would pay me. And that's how I developed my relationship. And then eventually when I felt comfortable, I was like, yo, give me a front. Mm-hmm. And yeah.
0: Right. And so and so here at Martin Middle School, you're able to then provide more activities and mentorship and things for the kids to do. That's the legacy program. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a few other things. What else are you so, working on so at Black Lives Veggies? The
1: last one, I'm not going to give too much detail okay. because I'm already scared I gave too much detail. <laughs> it's called Zion Maximus, man. And simply, it's an owner-operator's model. You know, like, quite often, gentrification comes, as we already see. And what it does is it destroys It destroys the history of that environment, that community. It leaves people angry. Well, I'm going to be specific. It leaves black people and Latinos angry. And some Caucasians, because now the mixing pot is huge. Mm-hmm. It leaves us angry, and it leaves the victimizer feeling guilty. So we all stay mm-hmm. away from each other because we don't want to deal with that. I hate you, and you feel guilty because you know what you did to an extent. But Zion Maximus bridges that gap. It gives individuals from the community the opportunity to own and operate something, which gives them pride and makes them have a sense of responsibility and belonging in their community, which often doesn't happen um, due to gentrification. So we're really excited about it, working hard at it. And uh, before you know it, it'll be a reality like everything else I spoke.
0: (laughs) And the idea here, you know, we said we don't want to get too much into the details, but the idea is offering an opportunity for For people, right, who might have a community garden or something to actually make money off of it, right? So is that the hope, or do you not want to say? Well, of course, (laughs) of
1: course, of course. So let's kind of. Do you mind if we kind of cross over in the policy of community gardens? Yes, let's
0: go in the policy because this is something when we first met that you were really animated about and we're working on is trying to figure out because the city has these policies, right? Well, we we have a community garden program at the city, but and you started to learn about this community garden program and felt like there were some flaws in it or some things that wouldn't work for all communities, right?
1: So there are flaws in it, you know, (laughs) period, point blank. I'll tell it to you. I'll tell it to the mayor himself, and I think he'll agree with me. There are flaws in it. Um, I think it was this spring I had came up with the idea of doing a spring garden tour where I would go around and serve community gardens with the basic necessities and... Initially, I began to talk with Edwin Marty. We were both very, very ambitious about it. I was even more ambitious than him. He brought me to a certain class of reality. He was like, bro, 25? I was like, yeah, 25, <laughs> I could do it. He was like, you need to take your time. <laughs> so I wound, up, I wound up doing four. And throughout the process, you know, it's, 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 it's so unfair. I mean, community gardens were like, literally scared to accept the help. And I'm like, yo, I didn't raise this money for you, and I'm trying to give you stuff. Like, take this. Mm -hmm. So the policy says that if you have a community garden, then you can't sell your vegetables. In my mind, I'm like, well, how is this community garden supposed to be sustainable? And it's kind of a cliche because in order for the community garden to be sustainable, they have to have something called a physical sponsor. And the physical sponsors on the city's website, So the physical sponsor receives the money and they are responsible for distributing the money accordingly to the community gardens so that they can be sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, if we look at that model, you know, that's like the typical, how can I say it? We don't trust your choice, we don't trust your judgment, so we're gonna put somebody above you But a lot of times, the physical sponsors have positions on their board or all throughout their organization that have outrageous budgets and expenses, given the community gardens only bits and pieces of the dollars. And to me, it's not necessary. Like, learn how to trust that community garden that is your community garden. If somebody says, Hey, we need 10 grand, like, believe them, give them 10 grand. Don't make them fill out this long ass piece of paperwork. Go through trial and error and get two grand. So we're able to serve forward with the basics, and um, we look forward to having it again next spring. Of course, more money, more money, more money.
0: <laughs> and then you know you're also trying to part of this is then trying to change some of these city rules, and you've you've had a taste of what it can be like to get in that process. I I know we talked about this once before, which is you started to look into it, and you're like, well, if this is a rule that you can't sell fruits and vegetables out of a community garden how do we change it and you realize there's a ton of bureaucracy and Mm -hmm. (laughs) confusion in there too which is maybe another difficulty with our local government absolutely it's hard for a regular person to like change a rule
1: so there's something called a i think it's called an ordinance
0: yes an ordinance
1: and when an ordinance is set in place it is projected to be it is projected to be set in place forever now if we think about a growing economy nothing is supposed to be set in place forever in the name of growth as a kid imagine if you were put inside of a box you know and you're continuing to grow but you're inside of this box eventually what would happen is you would become very very uncomfortable and hope that somebody would open this top so you can get out and live Well, that's the same thing with a growing economy here in Austin. Um, There's ordinances in place that stops the growth. And I think that we should really take a look at that. You know, not just the ordinance, but who set the ordinance in place? How long ago was it set in place? And what for? I think it's definitely something that should be done away with. I think nothing should be permanent in terms of government. We do live in a democracy, which means that the people are to say so us.
0: Yeah, and you can see a world where... Maybe at one time it made sense or the city was worried about people turning these gardens into like, uh, I don't know, like that would be Uh, runaway profit. I don't even know Honestly, I can
1: never see that it made (laughs) sense. Never. (laughs) I never could see that it made sense unless somebody had a side agenda or didn't trust the people they were dealing with. Right. You know, like why would you set a rule 20 years ago that's Mm -hmm. supposed to be permanent 20 years later? Mm -hmm. Like that's especially with a community garden space a space that's always changing you know right like why would you set that if you if you felt like there was going to be you know some um some deception going on well you should have put an accountability process in Mm -hmm. there. I mean everybody got a degree up there right Mm -hmm. you can't think about those things (laughs) and so yeah
0: it makes me think of you know when when we're talking about the city at large and Right now, the city is going through this process of um, we have a climate equity plan and the, <laughs> that if you've heard of. And so the idea is the city, right, trying to figure out a way to have a more sustainable, you know, healthier environment that benefits our planet and our people. Mm-hmm. Right. But they've been having this issue with, you know, I think they're they constant problem is well how do we really engage the community in an effective way in a real way and I think that's been a point of there's been road like there's been troubles there I'm curious from your perspective what what do you wish the city knew or would do differently because when they do this kind of community work honestly
1: I wish they would put me on the food board the policy (laughs) of food board that's what I honestly wish because I know the people up there no disrespect to them but they're not they're not there Mm hmm like, sometimes we get so far away from the people that we really don't have no idea what they think or what they need. We're really thinking from a space of, I'm happy to be here and I'm gonna protect myself while I'm here. We're not thinking from a space of, what do the people really need? You know, how can we really make this better? How can we really reduce our carbon footprint? I mean, the answer is simple. If you wanna know how to reduce our carbon footprint, Let's grow more than one percent of our vegetables local. Mm-hmm. Like it's right there in your face. But when you're really not thinking about the overall, then it's hard to see what is the solution because you're just caught up in yourself in a moment. And so, you have great voices all around Austin that come from what I'm gonna call the underworld, just for a lack of better words. It's all the Anthony Jacksons, the Nika Arnolds, the the jinxes, you know, you have great advocates of justice in every form and fashion. But for some reason, you know, there's this glass ceiling over the heads of the people. And I think that they should be invited in. I think we should have a sit with them. I mean, a seat with them.
0: Yeah, so many of these, you mentioned the Food Policy Board, the city has lots of these boards and commissions throughout the city. And you're right, oftentimes they're filled with kind of the same people who are always on these boards and commissions, not a ton of um, genuine community representation mm-hmm. or just different community representation. It can, usually the same people serve in a bunch of different boards. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So before we close. And so
1: hold on one more thing. Go for it. Now, and, and see, that's, that's like, <clears throat> that's like a, a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have the same person or the same group of people or, you know, me here, a little bit gone, me over there, but they are my friends that's when the deceptive strategies come into play, you know, because you feel comfortable. Everybody up there think like you, been thinking like you and going to keep thinking like you. So if anything, when a strategy is created, it's not created to the maximum, I mean to the maximum in terms of benefiting the people, you know, and you feel comfortable doing it. You don't have to deal with the people actually. You deal with a certain group and that's just the way it is. And so, yeah, man.
0: Yeah. Um I wonder well, two things. One, if people, how can people support you and your work and Black Lives Veggies? What are what are some ways that people can get involved or support what you're up to?
1: I'm really scared to say because next thing I know, whatever I say may be hacked. But anyway, <laughs> um, so the best thing I would say is just um, reach me through Facebook. You know, I do a lot of posts in there. Um, I have a few pages on there. So kind of hard to keep up with the real me <laughs> but if you just see the post and you'll know and support the small people you know mm-hmm. like not even me most of the small people I know we've had conversations with and nine out of ten they're good people with genuine um interest mm-hmm. so not even if you're supporting me you know support your local neighbor he'll give him a smile or something but
0: yeah I like that and then just before we close in any other final thoughts on this topic, things you wanted to share that we haven't discussed yet?
1: What I'm going to say is that I believe that we can reach another level of humanity. I believe that Austin is going through something so, so significant I've never seen before in my life. And I'm being honest. Very, very significant. Changes, changes, changes. $7.1 billion here. $20 million here. $44 billion here. All to accommodate this growing city. And I believe that if we do it right, this city can be the model for other cities that are in similar economic, social context. I believe that we could lead the way if we just get out of our own way and really think about what is the best thing that we could do with the resources that are available to us in order to increase the overall quality of this city that we so much love.
0: Great, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. That was awesome. Thank you. And that was Larry Franklin. If you want to hear more from Larry, keep an eye on our social media feeds because we'll be featuring more of Larry and his work in the coming weeks. Now, our next special guest is Tane Ward. Tane is an equity consultant who was actually brought in during the early stages of the development of Austin's Climate Equity Plan. He worked with over 100 people who were helping to write the plan in order to really explain what it means to center equity in their work and to bring everyone together around this common value. And in this clip you're about to hear, you're going to hear Tane speak first and then explain environmental racism, followed by climate equity. All right, let's give that a listen.
2: For example, Austin is really a good example of how uh, environmental racism has looked. And uh, essentially there was legalized segregation for years, which forced people of color into certain areas where they didn't have resources. Uh, People still built flourishing communities in those places. And there was a period of uh, disinvestment. For about 40 years in East Austin. Um, a lot of people talk about gentrification as something like, oh, you know, white people are moving into these areas of color. But gentrification actually starts a generation early. It starts when you really start to disinvest from these communities for a long time,
0: which drives
2: down these property values. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also redlining in Austin, which happened in the 1930s, where different neighborhoods were uh, designated. Uh, for having certain types of uh, development happen and, and, uh, and different uh, loan practices for banks. This is federal uh, law that happened in the 1930s, um, which allowed for uh, certain industries to be built in, in certain types of neighborhoods and not in other types of neighborhoods. Um, now, the the results of this uh, is what the easiest way that we can explain what structural racism is. Uh, let's look at school funding. I mean, on average, uh, for, for per student, a, a, a school of color has $2,000 less than a white school in Texas. Um, and if you say that to somebody, and they maybe say they're resistant to talking about critical race theory, what have you? And they say, well, that's because of the taxes and that people of color are poor and that's why. And and I say, well, you're right. That's exactly how structural racism works. Nobody today needs to say, I really don't like those people of color. It just needs to continue the way it's always continued. No uh, factory owner needs to say, oh, I want to put this nickel smelting factory next to that Chicano school because I don't like those kids. They just say, where's a cheap place for us to be able to put this that we're zoned to be able to put it? And once that's there, you know, they wanna keep that there, it's where their business is. They don't need to be racists in the way that we traditionally use that word, but we can see how racism actually functions because it's a structural uh, process whereby all, all we need to do is just keep doing the things we've always done, the way we've always done it. And the same thing is true for things like city processes. How does the city function? Well, function, well, mostly the city does what we've always done, unless we've specifically gone and changed it. Or how does uh, you know, we do uh, zoning, planning, any of these other kind of functions? Or how does environmentalism work? Well, who has traditionally been allowed to say what happens to the environment? Um, it's all, uh, traditionally been rich people. And it's usually been people who have power, it's usually been white people, and who has specifically not been allowed to say what happens to the environment. Uh, it's always been poor people, it's always been people of color. And uh, th- there again, we see how uh, racism is, is right there when we look at these issues of the environment. The same thing is true when we look at broader issues of climate, specifically, where uh, mostly we see the effects of that in sort of these kind of either disasters that happen or these uh, health pandemics that happen and uh, again people who are in poor areas and and people of color very specifically are going to be the most impacted by both of those things and really bear the brunt of uh, those issues and they're the ones who are least have least access to solve those problems because uh, it's we live in uh, in a place that is in short supply of real democracy. And what we mean by that is that people who are uh, living in an area uh, need to be able to have the power to make decisions about what happens in that area, whether the the the, the stream that we live by will be polluted or whether or not. It, a, uh, we're allowed to vote or w- what day the garbage comes or what have you and these are the things that have always been decided by a certain sector of society and this is no different in, in this city. who's doing the, the quantifying who's, who's doing the qualifying also of what what it means to be environmentally sound when we see things like uh, you know, electrification of uh, the, the cars or have you and, and people say let's Give a tax break for people to be able to buy uh, cars that, are, that, that run off of electricity. Well, that's mostly helping already people who have a lot of money. And uh, what about instead weatherizing houses, lowering people's utility bills who are struggling to stay in their neighborhoods? Um, and sometimes we do maybe we do both of those things, but uh, you know, making this type of decision you know, what, are we going to uh, make uh, prioritize? Uh, bring people out of poverty while we're doing this or not, and uh, or are we creating more poverty with these decisions? And I think that's really where equity is such an important uh, value to have because it, it's the idea is to orient the way that we work around alleviating poverty and suffering, and uh, and uh, we have to understand how sometimes with good intentions uh, we are reproducing the same structural racism that we have inherited not because we want to not because we desire to do this but because we live in a racist society in a very technically defined way and uh, and and that's for us to undo
0: yeah and then just before we close then you know any tips for we're now moving from, we have this plan to implementing it. And kind of the the fear or the concern is how do we make sure we keep that, we keep that um, climate equity focus into actually doing the work? (laughs) Have you seen other cities do this well or not well? Or what do you feel like we need to keep in mind as we transition from this planning in a nice safe space room, you know, as a group to Now this is coming out to the whole rest of the community, you know, and we're talking about kind of making some of the big decisions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that to keep people as engaged as possible, to keep democracy as democratic as we can possibly be, to consistently bring new people is important with any sort of um, implementation of anything. I always tell people that when when you wanna bring uh, new people and you have not been engaged in the past, you're going to have to work harder at that than bringing, by bringing people who've already been involved. Like if you're going to have a party and you're like, I'll invite all my in friends, you might just send a mass text. Or if you're going to bring people into a party that, that you had never met before, you'd probably have to like hang out with them a couple of times before getting them to come to your house, right? And that's the same way when we're working with a certain type of community. And people in you know, organizations essentially need to be understand that that it's going to take more resources, uh, time and money, uh, to, if you really want that, that type of participation, I think that another thing that I would advise people to do is to focus on this idea of, of organizing, you know, creating positions for people to be able to, you know, be hired within their communities to, to, to work for, To organize in this community to figure out what people want and bring them into the process and really deepening and strengthening that what democracy can look like
0: and that was Tane Ward and what Tane was describing there about deepening and strengthening democracy and getting more people involved in local decision-making processes is really the focus of our next guest work Celine Rendon is the former community engagement specialist for the Office of Sustainability at the city, and she currently works as a project specialist with EcoRise, a local environmental education nonprofit. And while Celine was at the Office of Sustainability, she ran a program called Climate Ambassadors, which was designed to do exactly what Tane was talking about, bringing in a more diverse array of people to help shape climate action planning in Austin. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. Okay, I'm here with Celine, and I, I want to start off by talking about climate ambassadors because um, I think this is a really interesting program that I'm now seeing be modeled across the city. Like, it seems like a lot of other city departments are are trying to do something similar, and I really think that you all helped to pioneer this a bit. So, let's just explain it real quick. What what was the community the Austin Community Climate Ambassador program in a nutshell?
3: So this was. Um in tangent with the Austin Climate Equity Plan, where we wanted to have a community climate ambassador program where community members would be applying an equity lens to climate work or their historical or lived experience. So these are community members that were getting paid to do um, uh, engagement across the city of Austin and their respective communities and providing that um, engagement piece for the to inform the climate equity plan goals and strategies.
0: Right. So these were people from, you know, communities that traditionally, um, uh, you know, maybe aren't going to city council meetings (laughs) regularly or filling out city surveys, kind of like um, the traditional means that the city collects feedback. And then the idea was, right, that the ambassadors would kind of survey them in essence by having conversations with them and then getting to share that information back with the city.
3: Yes, um, exactly. So if you think about traditional community engagement from the city, that's like your basic survey in English and Spanish. That's um, going to a city event. Um, there's a lot of different accessibility issues of like what time of day those meetings go on when people are working or are in school. Um, also about like childcare. care, um, also thinking about like translation needs. So a lot mm-hmm. of different barriers. So that's why we wanted to create this program. And because it was going to be the first pilot program of this kind Um, We wanted the ambassadors that were working with us to um, inform us about the lessons learned and help co-create this program through their experience working with us. Um, Kind of like consulting and um, while they're doing that engagement piece, like providing those findings to us, but also, you know, working with us of how can we make this program better? How can this be a model for future engagement opportunities from the city of Austin?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say consulting because the city you know, definitely spends money on expensive consulting contracts with consulting firms in order to do public engagement and all these things. And a lot of times like they do kind of miss the mark. And it's an interesting model to think of almost hiring the public to be their own consultants in some way. You know what I mean?
3: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, That was one of the That was really intentional with the climate plan itself in that we didn't have any outside consultants from like Chicago or New York or California. Um, No outside folks like that. Really just using folks um, across the Austin community that have been involved in DEI work or uh, anti-racism work, such as like Tane Ward, who um, facilitated our climate equity workshops. And again, with the Climate Ambassador Program, um, We worked with Susana Almanza from PODED to do that that climate equity workshop for all all of the ambassadors to make sure that we have that environmental justice and climate equity framing.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, by incorporating this ambassador component, what were some of the things that stood out for you that felt? Like it made the plan different. You know what I mean? So we we already had a climate plan here in Austin that, you know, the first go-around was passed, I think, in about 2015 that had some set some big goals, but equity was not really a major component of it as it was this time around. And and it we definitely didn't have a climate ambassador plan program. Yeah. You know, what kind of things? like, like like make it a little more real for people. I feel like a lot of times when we have these discussions about equity and justice, we use these words around, but sometimes I think it's not clear what that really means. Like, what does that look like?
3: So, um, totally right. Like I can, you know, say all the great, um, you know, values and, uh, factors that contributed to this, to this program. But I think it's really the journey in itself of what, um, led up to the creation of the climate equity plan. Um, it took about, I would say, over a year from when we had our first intro meetings, when we were first recruiting, you know, trying to do intentional recruitment with folks in the environmental justice space. Um, and really having honest and authentic discussions in the beginning of what does that mean? Because Austin um, is, you know, the city of Austin has a really Critical role, I guess, in being an institution where, you know, you know, put in the uh, 1928 master plan. If you think about like the city's role in racial segregation and the purposeful um, placement of industrial or waste facilities um, in close proximity to communities of color. So first it was having those discussions about the harm. Obviously, the city of Austin um, has contributed to um, or has led. And I think we took a lot of the leadership from the city of Austin's equity office because they've done a lot of work um, in their network with community organizers and community members across Austin um, and developing the equity tool that all departments, you know, have to use to have an assessment of their departments and, you know, the practices that are inequitable and create a lot of the um, outcomes that we see um, around like barriers to engagement or um, missing of um, contextual history. Because if we don't know that history, going into the climate plan, we can just be perpetuating this the same old, same old that we see in traditional environmentalism that doesn't have that racial equity um, analysis uh, where you have to lead with race. You have to have data that that breaks that down. So, like I said, a lot of conversations, a lot of honest conversations with community members. I think that climate equity workshop that Dr. Tane Ward left led with us was really important because, um, uh, we did a deep dive into, um, the history of Austin and getting to pull from the wisdom of people in the room, community members that, you know, born and, uh, born and raised or lived in Austin and have that historical, uh, reference and sharing that and having other people like city, um, City staff in that room hearing that and you know making that connection to their work, whether it's um, like watershed protection or whether it's related to parks and recreation, um, having that uh, historical reference to see um, why it's been very intentional that there's been inequitable outcomes related to health um, and the environment. So. I think that climate equity workshop definitely was the beginning of it but those conversations had to continue on into you know the different steering committee meetings the different advisory group meetings our engagement um channels and then also of course with the ambassador program um because the office of sustainability is a really small office and so i was the only community engagement specialist you know getting to be in this role knowing that we are trying to do something different but it really was um, a collaborative space that made the plan um, what it is and what it came out to be at the end of it. Um, But it's really on the basis of the relationship building, having these conversations. Um, It wasn't always like a super positive environment. Um, I think, you know, you have those moments where, you know, there's people on a different spectrum learning about race, class, and environment. and so it it's not like you just go to one training and you learn everything. Right. It's really that consistent dialogue that we have, and pulling in data, pulling in references. What are other cities doing? Um, and then again, with this ambassador having that lived experience, you know, centering that and learning from it, um, and not just looking at like uh, data and and strictly quantitative numbers that don't really have like the the lived experience that we're, you know, we need a center in. Right. Yeah. It seems like kind of what you're talking
0: about a little bit is some, some trust building as well, because yes. there are, yeah, like, you know, we do have these examples, especially even when you look at environmental things, Austin has this history of being an environmentally friendly city and we have to save our Springs um, ordinance and that activism in the nineties that helped to preserve Barton Springs pool. But, you know, as a lot of leaders have pointed out, that led to some consequences on the east side and and further concentrated industrial development in East Austin. And, you know, there was even like a recycling facility that was located in East Austin, I think, at one point in time and, you know, very close to people's homes and, and neighborhoods. And so um, the community... What's interesting to me about the climate plan, it is meant to be community. Obviously, the city is leading it and can pass policies, but it won't work. We'll never get our emissions to zero if the whole community isn't on board as individuals. And that's a hard thing to do when there's a lot of mistrust of the city, right? It's like. Yeah.
3: I mean, I think a clear example too, like Barton Springs wasn't desegregated until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So, Think about community members um, or Black residents living in Austin then, and all the struggles that came to to make that action happen, to find to, to do pool sit-ins, and to have the um, flashback from people from the city or people that run Barton Springs. Um, I mean, you can, there's so much more history to go back, even with colonialism and how that's transformed Austin. But again, just thinking about how City of Austin's history has made progress. Um, because of the fight of communities of color coming together and uh, making their voice heard and saying, hey, this isn't right, we have to do something different. So much similar to like environmental justice issues that we still see happening today, um, but oftentimes community members that work in that space um, get gaslighted or totally get pushback of like, these are not real concerns. So it's like a similar pattern that you see back then to even now around environmental justice issues um, where it's it's really community power coming into play to educate folks and to, you know, tell the real story of what's going on and what that power dynamic is. Um, So definitely, I mean, even with the ambassador program being very intentional that we wanted to hear from community members that we haven't heard from before in the sense, you know, Um, there's a lot of, you know, key community members across Austin that are very involved with like civic engagement and going to city council meetings, but what would it look like, you know, to continue doing intentional outreach to recruit folks, you know, that haven't been involved in city planning process before, you know, that's something new, new for them, but for us to, you know, get that experience of what are the actual barriers when it comes to getting involved into a planning process, like the climate equity plan, um, So a lot of these folks I've never worked with before or, you know, they are in in new community spaces that were, you know, different for me. And, um, you know, again, being intentional what we're asking to them, like, hey, this is something we're trying to do that's different. We want your honest feedback. And um, that's, you know, this is a compensated role. You're going to be receiving funding. So, you know, we really value your input, your feedback and your uh, the, the lens that you bring to this to this work
0: yeah I want to talk some about lessons learned and like where we where we go from here with the climate program. you know, so we had this first cohort um, and I wonder like as you reflect on it now, what do you feel like went really well and what do you feel like you'd love to see improved upon in the future because you know the city is hoping to launch another version of climate yeah. ambassadors as well. like where do you feel like or just for other communities that maybe are looking to model something like where, what are some of the things yeah. that we've learned from this process?
3: So this was, so I think for the climate equity plan, you know, it's, it's, it's its own story. The individuals that were involved made it what it was. It was such a huge learning experience for me, the, you know, high points of just the relationship building and collaborating with partners like, well, the, um, the community members that were involved and the lived experience that was, that was shared and shed light upon. Um, And yes, I am very much aware that this is kind of being a model program, and there's going to be more replications um, throughout the city of Austin. Um, That being said, I think um, one of the biggest barriers or struggles that we had for the ambassadors during the program was just bureaucracy and how that works. Like, yes, we have intentionality. You can set everything up right. Um, You can have a timeline in place. But I think for how the city of Austin operates with scheduling, timelines, deadlines, city council meetings, we have to produce this plan within this year. Like, and if you're talking about getting everyone as much as possible involved and centering racial equity, like that takes time. So there's a lot of barriers within that bureaucratic process where, you know, we would love if our ambassadors could have attended more advisory group meetings or could attend more like. Um, City of Austin events, Um, it it was just hard because a lot of people could only do things in the evenings or they could only even do things on the weekends. So different scheduling um, constraints. But again, we try to be as flexible as we can, you know, working with them. The main thing is that we wanted to make sure that they were being supported doing their engagement outside of the city. Um, But again, because of that, you know, some missed opportunities, navigating the the bureaucracy of the city of Austin, which I think is a struggle for, you know, majority of everyone in Austin trying to get involved in city planning processes. Um, so back to the, how this is like a model program that, you know, being created. Um, I I love the idea of people always being paid for their work, you know, for what it it should be valued at and respected for. Um, I would love to see more processes like this um, maybe led by not a city of Austin group, like maybe city of Austin could contract or, you know, have someone else run the whole entire program to maybe transform it and be more flexible if it's led by a community-based group or like, yeah, just not city affiliated to manage it um, and to call, you know, have more uh, influence on like, you know, the design of it, what they want to do, having more freedom around that. Um, I think too, like, My lesson from this is there's there's so much wisdom and expertise of community members and everyday folks across Austin. And I would love to see that not people being hired temporarily, but rather hiring these people for full-time paid positions in the city of Austin. if you think about my role as a community engagement specialist, that's a temporary role. You're going to see pop up all that. And I'm, I'm just being honest. Uh, I don't work for the city anymore. So I think I can mm-hmm. be a little honest in saying that community engagement roles at the city of Austin are typically temporary. They're not a full-time usual position that sticks um, in that department. It's like you get hired one or two years and then that position closes. You have to find something else but you lose a lot of great people from that. Um, so I think too, with the ambassador program, like getting to work with them for a year, but having a permanent paid position um, for and what it should be valued at um, salary wise in the city of Austin, having a community member, you know, being paid and be selected um, through the similar application process that we had. So just seeing more of that, um, you know, representation can only go so so far, like. Yes, I do believe environment bar- equity, diversity, inclusion work is important. But if you're only having a few people that have that experience working for the city of Austin, you're still working within an institution where it's a lot more people that don't have that lens. It's a lot more systemic issues that obviously you're 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 gonna have to go through and the barriers. So I would just love to see, you know, instead of building out these temporary programs can we have something that's permanent can we have something that's ongoing that's funded to what it should be funded at and think about hiring some of these folks full-time um, like i said a high-valued position that they should get hired at um, i think you there's you know there's there's just so much opportunity there's so much wisdom and great knowledge from community members here so um you know, improving that bu- bureaucracy and, you know, how we hire people and the retention of really great people like that, I, I think that has to be front and center than thinking that we should build out 10 more ambassador programs. Or maybe just have one permanent ambassador program that should hopefully feed into all of these departmental issues because, you know, what the Office of Sustainability works on with the climate plan is very much relevant for like watershed protection. It's very much relevant parks and rec very much relevant to Austin resource recovery and what all these other different departments do. So why don't we just do engagement all together? Um, Since obviously we know now that these issues are all interrelated and you can't silo it out.
0: Yeah, I I appreciate that. I mean, I think that it's true. It's, it's, it's a step forward, but it doesn't mean that we're done (laughs) stepping (laughs) right. As far as the way we do things I, I, you know, I, I'd love to, um, you mentioned the Youth Equity Council. Um, yeah. I wanted to touch on that really quick uh, just so we can explain what that program is. Um, Cause that's another program that um, is ongoing right now and thinking of a way to particularly tie in youth. Do you wanna just explain that really quick so that people can yes. be aware of that as well?
3: So we actually just wrapped up for the, uh, the school year, 2021 to 22 school year. Um, but the Austin Youth Climate Equity Council, it engages high school youth as leaders in local climate action. And this is to support the implementation of the city of Austin's climate equity plan and Austin ISD sustainability plan. So um, I think also I I was in this unique role prior as a community engagement specialist for the climate equity plan. So when I transitioned my work with EcoRise, um, knowing that we had our mayor's youth climate engagement council in San Antonio, could we do something similar here in Austin? And how can this, you know, inform city planning, um, and also at, at the school district level, their sustainability planning. Um, so bringing those two groups, to, those two institutions together, the city of Austin and the Austin ISD, and that there's, like, plans going on related to resilience hubs, um, the bond going on of, like, uh maintenance issues across Austin ISD schools, and then you have the Austin Climate Equity Plan, which obviously a lot is relevant for youth um, and uh, the school district. So um, yeah, we got to engage, I think it was about like 17 um, high schoolers that got involved, uh, and they were to then They learned first semester focusing on environmental justice history, city planning and policy. What is the climate equity plan? What are the other plans going on? And then the spring semester getting to dive in with their group that formed a community impact project. But again, how is this relevant for that climate equity plan? What are some youth call to actions that that come from that? I think, too, this also comes back to the ambassador program, where we had two high schoolers involved in the ambassador program, um, AJ James Jr. and then Sheridan Ray. They were two high schoolers involved at the time. But learning from them that this was very intimidating for them as high school youth to be involved in the climate plan process. (laughs) So learning from that, that we definitely need to build out more space for youth to get engaged and to learn about, you know, the Austin Climate Equity Plan and just, you know, city planning and climate issues in general. So that's it tied directly to the development of this program. Hopefully we have a second year next year. Um, So this was the, the first cohort that we had.
0: What kind of projects
3: do the students work on? So we had three groups. It was based on the tenants of the climatic we plan. so natural systems. Um, we had a rainwater garden project from that group. Uh, the transportation and land use group focused on uh, gentrification and the impact on local um, Austin ISD communities. And then our third group, sustainable buildings, focused on indoor air quality and CO2 sensors. So there's a little bit more technical. Um, but it was, it was more so like their opportunity to, to learn about the civic engagement process. They had to do some investigations, like speaking to people in their community about these issues and to get insight that informed their, their projects. Um, but that all wrapped up just recently, actually last week. So hopefully we'll have some, uh, media assets and some reporting to follow up. As yeah. we wrap it up, close yeah, out. Yeah,
0: it seems similar to the Climate <laughs> Ambassador Program, but just tied to youth.
3: Yes, because, uh, I mean, so much is just, uh, we had like a guest speaker series where both youth councils in San Antonio and Austin came together to hear from guest speakers like Susana Almanza from Poder. Um, we had Rocia Villalobos uh, from the equity office, you know, talking about the power of storytelling. Had um, Shane Johnson come and talk. We had uh, other folks Even people from the national level, you know, we try to make sure we have critical perspectives around environmental justice. But having our youth get to hear from people like that and learn in the context related to Austin and climate change.
0: Right. And get to be involved in AISD planning, too, is so huge. I mean, that's one that I'm always always frustrates me so much when you look at school board politics and policies. And so often students Ooh, yeah. are like not part of it at all. <laughs> it's insane.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, oh gosh, it's so funny. Like wh- yeah, working with the city of Austin is a whole beast. And then, yeah, even when I was working at the city of Austin, so many issues that we're talking about around gentrification, affordability, flooding issues, all of that comes back to our communities and schools. Mm-hmm. Schools make up a- communities and the fact like it's students, it's parents, it's teachers, it's service providers, they like work in there day in, day out. Think about the winter storm, how some schools then turned into, you know, resource centers or, uh, you know, emergency uh, shelter sites. So there's a lot of work to come. I think I know the Office of Sustainability is working on that resilient hubs discussions uh, with AASD. So I think there's going to be a lot more coming from that soon, Great. hopefully.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I, I really appreciate it. And that was Celine Rendon. And that's also our show for today. But be sure to tune in again next week as our mini-series on local climate action continues. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band. Thanks for listening.